So Luke 11 closed with some angry religious leaders seeking to catch Jesus in a mistake. They failed, of course. They desired to bring accusation against him and put him to death. They had had enough of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I mean, they were like, this is not the Messiah. He is the anti-Messiah, the anti-Christ. Um, they, these men, the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, they had deceived themselves into thinking that they were right with God and that they were really the only ones that were approved by Him. Well, in chapter 11, Jesus makes it really clear, I don't approve. I don't approve of you at all. And He goes through a long list of things that He does not approve of. He uses strong language he pronounces woes. He calls them fools. And they are extremely upset when it comes to the end. And so verse 54 of chapter 11, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something that he might say that they might accuse him. So that's how, that's how it ends, is a, a group of people that were not approved of God were severely rebuked, and they don't get it. They don't catch the rebuke. They have no self-awareness. There's no spiritual discernment that they are wrong with God. That's a pretty scary place to be, isn't it? Is that you can have God himself rebuke you to your face, and you're like, yeah, I'm okay. You're the one that's wrong. And I'm not going to re-preach chapter 11, but that, that is... That is where we end. As you come into chapter 12, um, the Lord is going to speak to us about how um, we can be approved um, and what we should do. He's going to talk about not being a hypocrite. He's going to talk about not being a covetous person. And he's going to talk about not being taken by surprise. It's number three that we'll catch in the next study. So let's begin at verses 1 through 12 where he instructs them to not be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. And we got a few points under this that we're going to consider, beginning in verses 1 through 3. It says, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. They're hypocrites and they're leaven. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. I mean, the Lord's already done that to him, hasn't he? They're thinking in their mind certain things. He's like, hey, let's talk about what you're thinking about. You know, you say this, you're thinking that, and he confronts them um, with this, and they're trying to hide, and he says, don't be like these guys. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be uh, afraid of... Uh, I don't, I don't have the right thing here. Don't be afraid of being challenged. Don't be afraid of, um, uh, I don't know what point I was trying to make the verses 1 through 3, but that's weird. Be afraid of a progress. I meant, don't be afraid of, I don't know what I meant to say on that, so just scratch that. I've got good stuff to follow, though, I promise you. Um, <laughs> I mean, he, Jesus is using this word that we talked about on Sunday morning, um, hypocrite which means to give an impression of having certain purposes or motivations while in re reality having quite different ones. And so 
they were pretending to be right with God and spiritual, but the Lord says, watch out for these guys. They are not like that. And you don't want to be a hypocrite. You don't want to be um, overcome in the way these guys are. And he wants us to be real. He wants us to be people that when we speak and when we act and when we, um, even when we fail, that we're real with who we are. And that we don't pretend to be uh, people other than, than we are. And, and he challenges, he goes, these guys are playing the hypocrite. They're pretending to be somebody they're not. But their true identity, verses 2 and 3, it's going to be revealed. It's going to be revealed. It's going to be really clear who these guys are. And, and not only um, them, but everyone, right? There's going to be an accounting. And we're going to talk a lot about that as we move through the, the latter verses. But just allow yourself to, to think about this. Jesus says, there is 11 of these guys. There's a, the way in which they act and the way in which they conduct themselves. It's like leaven that comes in and it, it just corrupts everything it touches. It's like leaven that comes in and corrupts and puffs up. He says, they are that. And it is hypocrisy that you have to be careful of. Again, think of Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. How does the Lord feel about these things? So, verses 4 and 5, we move on and it talks about fearing him who has the power over your eternity. And I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who would kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. So the hypocrites, their fear was not of God. Their, their reverence, the word is phobos here. Phobia is where we get our English word. It's a strong word when we talk about fear. And so they feared Man, they wanted to be seen as being amazing and wonderful, and they wanted to have all the greetings in the marketplaces. We've gone through a lot of that. And he says that that's what they seek. They seek the fear of man. But I want you, friends, I want you to have a fear over the one who has power to influence your eternity, to impact your eternity. He has power over both soul and body. The temptation would have been, of course, to allow these men to influence how you would respond to Christ. You right? They were the, the, the power brokers. You didn't want to cross these guys. You didn't want to be on the wrong side of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Just ask Jesus. They crucified him. Because he was on the wrong side. Lazarus was on the wrong side. And after Jesus raised him from the dead, they wanted to kill him again. And he's saying, don't be, aware of these guys. Don't be afraid of these guys. Don't, don't have a fear of them and what they think. They're hypocrites. This is what you really need to worry about. Is what happens after they have done their worst to you. After... Uh, godless men, evil men have done their worst against you. It's over. The only impact they can have is a natural one. They can only influence your next breath. They can't do anything beyond that. And once they've done that, then you're in the hands of the Lord. And you want to make certain that you are fearing the one 
that can welcome you into the presence of eternity. That's the one that you really need to be concerned about. And so he is instructing them in this way. Um, you know, we're, we're thinking here about eternity. And a person will either live eternally with the Lord, or they will live eternally separated from the Lord in the lake of fire. And when, when you put it in terms like that, what are, we, what are we concerned about? The only thing we can be concerned about is the next five minutes of what they can do. Because once we've gone from this life, we will be in the presence of the Lord and we will be taken care of. So Romans, uh, Luke 12, uh, verses 4 and 5. Fear him who has power over your eternity. Verse 6, it says, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very heads of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So don't fear that you're unloved by God. Don't be afraid that you have no value. You know, he, I mean, he, he warns them in such a, a strong way of where you're going to be for eternity. I have the power to influence your eternity. But don't, but don't be afraid in the sense of that you're, there's no hope. You're of more value than many sparrows. So it's better, better to fear the one who truly cares for you than to fear the one who doesn't care for you. Because he's going to take care of you. And Jesus is using an argumentation that was well known. Uh, and you find this throughout uh, not only Jesus' writings and the, uh, the, the Gospels, but you also find in the epistles, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. And it goes like this. If the lesser is true, then the greater certainly must be true. The lesser here is that God um, does not forget about sparrows. If he doesn't forget about the lesser, the sparrow, then he's certainly not going to forget about you because you are of more value than many sparrows. Something about sparrows. Sparrows were sold for two pennies. Two pennies. And um, this was not worth much. Two pennies equaled one-sixteenth of a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage. A common day laborer's wage. You could buy um, a sparrow for one-sixteenth or two pennies of a denarius. It was said to be the cheapest thing you could buy in the marketplace. And so you go and buy the sparrows. It's, if you hadn't, didn't have enough money, that was you could at least buy that. And so you're thinking of those that were truly poor and, and desperate. So the thing that is least valuable in the economic system of that day, a sparrow, he says, I care about that. So, I mean, if you're going from lesser to, to greater, the Lord couldn't have chosen anything of less value. So he chose the sparrow. It's the cheapest thing you can buy. It's, the most, it's, it's, it's near worthless. But if I care about the sparrow then certainly I care about you. You're of more value than the sparrows. And then he also says, in verse 7, but the very head, hairs of your head are all numbered. So he doesn't forget about them. Um, 
And, and so here he, he just talks about how, you know, I know exactly what's going on in your life. I can see how many hairs are on your head. And a little, little fun facts about hair. Redheads have 90,000 strands of hair. Dark-haired person, 120,000. A blonde, 145,000. And he knows exactly how many hairs you have. Those are rough estimates, right? He knows exactly. He said, well, I'm balding. Well, then you should feel especially secure because the Lord knows all that is on your head or not on your head. And it's a way to communicate he loves you and he values you. Now, these hypocrites, you could be afraid of what they may do to you, but don't be afraid of them. Because when you pass from this next life, they can't touch you. And I'm looking out for you. And I know of how valuable you are to me. And how valuable are we to the Lord? Enough that he would send his son to die on the cross for us. And so he places value upon you. And he wanted to redeem you. So they have their plans and they have their plots, but God's aware. This is not a passage that's promising exemption from hardship or persecution, but it's rather saying nothing is going to touch you without your Heavenly Father knowing it. So are we okay with that? We don't have much choice in the matter, but are you okay with the fact that you may not, that, or that the, the Father will allow things to pass through His hands that will touch you? It may bring hurt, it may bring pain, it could even bring death, right? I mean, people have died. Sovereign God has allowed those things to pass through the hand. You must be convinced of this one thing. You are more valuable than a sparrow. Again, it isn't just like barely, you know, I mean, you chose the most worthless thing, and therefore you just kind of say, I'm like, that's what you want to compare me to? No, it's an argument from lesser to greater, okay? That's the way you've got to think about it. He chose the least valuable thing, and he says, if that's true, then this is definitely true. So it's not like he's just barely getting above the least valuable thing. That's the wrong way to understand how Jesus is communicating. Verses 8 and 9, he tells them to not be afraid to confess Jesus. He says, Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So, (laughs) you know, again, it's the same kind of thought. These guys, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They're hypocrites. Don't worry about what they can do to you. What you need to do is you need to be worried about what's going to happen after you pass from this life. And he says, so don't be afraid to confess me because I'm going to confess you. I'm going to confess you. People can anticipate the worst that would come. And you know, I, I think that in the last maybe couple of years, we have seen, um, and maybe us even in the last year, we've seen that there's a, a greater intensity and a willingness to come against people. And I will even go outside of religious things if you've got a, an opinion that somebody doesn't agree with, right? We see that being ramped up. We have the whole cancel culture thing going on or wanting to deplatform somebody. You say something I don't like and, man, they'll be all over you. And we see that intensity that is um, you know, growing in, in, our, in our own country. And now we think about as Christians wanting to speak up and wanting to speak the word of the Lord and the truth of the Lord. 
Why do you to say that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him? We want to talk about holiness or purity, and we know how the world's going to respond to that because they've made it clear. And the fear can be is like, well, I don't know if I really want to identify with Jesus. It may not be a good thing for my job. It may not be a good thing for your job. It may be the worst thing for your job to identify with Christ. Well, I don't know how it's going to work out with my family. You know, well, Again, it may be the worst thing you could possibly do is to identify that you are a follower of Jesus Christ and confess him. That may be the worst thing that you could do. And you'll see the most negative reaction from your workplace or from family or from friends or from our culture. Jesus said, if they didn't like me, don't be surprised if they don't like you. He, and he, he warned us ahead of time. And he says, but here's the deal. If you confess me, I'm going to confess you. I'm not going to be ashamed of you. I'm going to identify that you're one of mine. And what a tragedy it would be to be so afraid of man that we'd be unwilling to confess Christ, to die and stand before Christ and to have him not confess us because we are unwilling to confess him. Those are his words. Those are his words. And so... Jesus is right, and his ways are right, and his truth is right. Don't be afraid. Well, I'm just afraid of the reaction. Jesus already told you it's going to be a bad reaction. We've just lived in this strange little bubble in America where you could be a Christian, and you could be applauded in many places of society, and now that's beginning to change. So now we're having to deal with the reality of what people have dealt with around the world for centuries inside the church. Are you ready for it? I mean, how do you answer that question? It's happening, though. And we need to make certain that we are walking close to the Lord and that we appreciate Him and that we love Him and that we are true disciples. And I think that if things continue to go in the, you know, the way that they say, the, the trajectory of where they're headed, I the hostility towards the church and believers is going to increase and it's not going to decrease. And I think the only way that changes is if the Lord blesses us with another revival. And we need that. And so let's pray for that. Let's hope for that. Let's be ready for it. But also let's be ready that perilous times may come. And that would you deny Christ if it meant you were going to lose your job? Would you, would you deny him? Or would you, would you confess him boldly? Somebody say, oh, I just got a question for you. you know, I just wonder, are you, are, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? You know, you don't, don't say yes. You know, what, what's going to be your response? Say, oh, I am way more than a follower of Jesus Christ. I am his number one devoted follower of Jesus. You can't find somebody that's more in love with Jesus than me. Would you double down or would you try to say, well, you know, yeah, of course I'm a, I'm a Christian, but aren't a lot of people Christians? And, you know, I don't know exactly, how, you know, some Christians say things and I don't know if I agree. Would you try and kind of just muddy the waters? Or would you just confidently say, I'm a follower? Would you be like Peter says, I don't even know the guy? Deny him. We need to be those that are prepared to confess him but he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God not my words those are his words
He says, be afraid of ignoring, or we move to verse 10, the point being, be afraid of ignoring the Holy Spirit. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the idea here is, what should really trouble you is, is not those guys. In their opinion, what should really trouble you is that you would ignore the working of the Spirit of God in your life. What is the working of the Spirit of God? John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. He's the Helper. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me, see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So John's gospel makes it clear what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. It convicts us. It brings us to this understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse John 15, verse 26, But when the Helper comes whom I shall send, to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of me. If you reject the Holy Spirit who is sent to testify of Him, you ignore the only way you can be saved. So why does Jesus say, you know, you can speak a word against the Son of Man and it will be forgiven, but the Holy Spirit... And, and the, the, the idea is, under the Old Covenant, the Father was urging the world to prepare their hearts for Jesus, the Messiah. When Jesus came, He was calling people to Himself. But if you reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit today, there is no other option for you. There's no, there's no other option. There's no other opportunity. The only way that you can be saved is to respond to the conviction of the Spirit of God. So what does that mean? It means that if you're listening, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, but you have been pondering, you've been wondering, you've even thought, man, I've got to get my life right with God, but I just don't know. That, that thought right there, that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is testifying to you that Jesus is the Christ, and you must respond to that. And if you reject that, testimony that he brings to you there is no hope there is you cannot find forgiveness so you maybe you've been thinking these are just your own thoughts you kind of have been you've always kind of been a spiritual person and you've just been thinking you need to get right with the lord no that's not it that's not what's going on at all because the bible says you know what i'm going to say you've been around there's none who seek after god no not one you are not desiring to seek after God because you're a spiritually minded person. There's none that seek after God. No, not one. It is God who seeks after man. And the thought that says, I need to get right with the Lord, is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if you reject that, then you reject any opportunity of ever finding forgiveness. Well, when I get to heaven, no, 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 no. You can't take care of business then. you got to take care of business now. Does anybody wish they would have bought Amazon stock when it first went public? You can't do that now. You can wish that you would have done that now. 
Does anybody remember when that first came out? And I, I do remember that. I mean, well, yeah, not, I don't have enough money for that. Man, I wish I would have found a way, right? I mean, would have, could have, should have. You can't go back and buy Amazon stock at the value it was when it went public. You can't do that. That's gone. And as true as that is, it is even more true that when you are in the presence of God and if you have rejected the opportunity to buy into salvation, there is no chance. There is no chance. Oh, I just believe. It doesn't, listen, it doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what did Jesus just say? I mean, well, I just think when he gets to heaven, he's going to allow people in. Yeah, but that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus says. So are you saying that Jesus is lying right here? That if you deny him, he's not really going to deny you? And that you can reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and yet you still can get in? See, that is your own religion. You are your own little guru. Or you get to believe the Lord. And you allow him to be the one that instructs you and teaches you. So that's what verse 10 is talking about. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Who has committed this sin? Well, that's really hard to tell, isn't it? Who's committed this sin? Well, I don't know. And I don't think you know either. If you're worried that you've committed this sin, I've got good news for you. As soon as we're finished here, and you can only have to wait, you can do it right where you sit. You can just say, Lord, I believe in you. I confess you as Lord and Savior. And you don't have to worry about being that person. And you can yield to him, and he can become your Lord and your master. And you think, well, I don't know if I want to do that. Well, then what are you complaining about? You don't want him anyways. But if you are troubled that you may not have eternal life, then you can come to Jesus Christ. The opportunity is in front of you. Anybody who still is being convicted that they need to get their life right with the Lord is somebody that this is not applying to. If you're worried that you've committed this sin as a believer, I can assure you, you haven't committed this sin. Because if you had committed this sin, you would not be what? You would not be worried about it. Your heart would be so hard and so callous towards the things of God you would, you would just say, so what? That would be your response to what we just talked about, what Jesus says there in verse 10, that you can't be forgiven. You're like, who cares? I don't want to be forgiven anyway. That would be that kind of heart. Now, even a person that would say that, their heart can change. You know, we think about um, the brother, uh, the brothers of Jesus. You know, they didn't believe in him. They thought he was nuts. Yeah, that's our older brother. And he is a little crazy. And we just got to say, Jesus, come on. It's time to come home, Jesus. Let's, let, let's go home. That, that's what they did. But yet they became followers and believers and, and leaders in the church. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I would say, is best understood as a settled conscious rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's a settled decision. Is that you? Well, do you want to get right with the Lord? Then it's not you. And uh, maybe the, the Lord will even save you at that last moment. So I think it's ill-advised to try and pin down who these people may be that have committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's those that have decided they don't want anything to do with them, and they die with that as 
their mindset. They have no chance of being forgiven. Verses 11 and 12, don't be afraid of persecution. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So don't be afraid of persecution. I mean, there, you know, you confess me, you respond to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and you follow me, uh, you're going to go to synagogues, Jewish, you're going to appear before magistrates and authorities, Gentiles. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have your day in court, and don't worry about what you ought to say. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to instruct you in that very hour what you ought to say. Isn't this often the reason why we don't even want to open our mouth in the first place and share anything about Jesus because we're afraid we're not going to know what to say? I realize this is a slightly different application, but I think it's still a good place, is that the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. Open your mouth and begin to share. One of the first times I remember sharing um, you know, the gospel with somebody, it began like this. I said to my friend Adam, I said, listen, I want to go out and I want to share the gospel, um, but I don't want to do anything the first time. I just want to watch. Can we go out? And we went and go down to the pier and go sharing. And he said, he said, um, he said yeah, we can go do that. And so we went down there. We got out of the car. We prayed. And I said, remember, I don't want to say anything. He's like, gotcha. I'm not going to put you on the spot. Don't worry about it. I won't do that. So we walked up to somebody and um, out, out there at uh, Newport Beach Pier, and we began to talk to him. I don't remember what was said, but he gave his objection, and I began to talk. And Adam just let me talk. And so we, we talked to this guy for an hour. And so when he walked away, he looked at me and goes, so you don't want to talk, huh? I'm like, I had so much to say, you know? And it's because the Holy Spirit was just bringing Scripture and and the gospel to proclaim and step out and watch how the Spirit will be there to speak with you. I think of Acts chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Peter and John. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Healed this man at the gate beautiful. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people, elders of Israel. What's the key phrase there? Filled with the Holy Spirit. At that very hour, the Lord filled them. Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 20. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could not say, they could say nothing against it. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said, What is right in the sight of God to listen? Uh, uh, sight of God to listen to you more than, than to God you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so this is how the Holy Spirit worked in their life to fulfill this prophecy of Jesus. When you're delivered up, I'm going to be right there with you. And the Spirit is going to teach you exactly what to say. Or we can think of Acts chapter 7. We can think of, of the speech of Stephen. And as he proclaimed, maybe you just go and you can read this on your own tonight, and see how Jesus' prophecy that the Spirit would give you what to speak in that very, very hour. Look at what the Holy Spirit gave him to speak. And the Lord will be faithful. And so don't be afraid of the trouble. Don't be afraid of what's going to come. 
I'm going to be with you. The Spirit is going to teach you what you're going to do. So our first major point here is that we must uh, be those who confess Jesus Christ and not be intimidated by the hypocrites, the Pharisees, and their leaven. Don't allow that fear to be what motivates you. Allow the fear of God to be what motivates you. And so that's the first thing that Jesus wants to say to us is that if you're, you know, if you're going to be approved, these guys are not approved. You want to be approved by me, then, then fear me. Confess me. Don't allow what may happen in the physical to push you back from the spiritual that I have to give to you. In verses 13 through 34, he says, don't be a covetous person. And he go through, goes through a series of teaching. In verses 13 through 15, he says, Then one of them from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to a man who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you. And he said to them, Take heed, beware of covetousness. So beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. Beware of covetousness is the second thing. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Covetousness is that greedy desire to have more. And so a man comes to him, no doubt he's the younger brother, because the older brother would have already had the inheritance, and he was the executor of the will. It's just the way it worked in that. The eldest son was the executor, and he would distribute as he felt best. So we have a, a younger brother coming saying, hey, we got a family dispute. Tell my brother that he's got to give it to me. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to get caught up here. Now, is there ever a time that maybe that should be addressed? Yeah. So why would Jesus not address somebody withholding? I think it's because the issue of this guy's heart is that he is covetous. Because that's what follows. But he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. So, I mean, in the context, the man who comes to him is a covetous man who's wanting more and more and more. It, it isn't even so much that maybe he shouldn't get the inheritance, but the Lord looks at him and says, Buddy, the last thing you need is more. That's your problem. Is that you are wanting more stuff, and that's that greedy desire to have more. And the Lord says, Beware of this covetousness. Materialism. Jesus is not going to be used to promote materialism in this guy's life. And maybe that's what's going on in your life because in that the Lord's not answering your questions for some prosperity. Because he knows. I don't know. But he knows that if he was to answer your prayer for that thing, that it could totally consume you. I mean, if you knew that your prayer request Lord, bless me financially, or bless this situation, or that one, or this one, or help me not to ever struggle again. If you knew that resulted in you becoming a full-blown materialistic person that only lives for the dollar, and you no longer care about the kingdom of God, would you want your prayer answered? The answer is no. I would not want that prayer to be answered. Lord, don't give it to me, right? The Lord knows. 
And so just like this guy, I mean, I think there's a just cause here. It's not that there's not a matter of there was a just thing or an unjust thing. The Lord goes beyond the presenting issue and says, your heart is so greedy. I'm not going to get involved in giving you more. So you're not going to have me help you do that. And maybe that's where you are. And that's why the Lord hasn't given you the same things that he's given somebody else. I don't know that that's the case, but it's certainly possible. The Lord hasn't allowed you to have it because he knows what it would do to you. And if that be the case, then thank you, Jesus, that you hold back. I don't want that which is going to ruin me. And that's what the Lord is essentially saying here. Verses 16 through 21, again, it's kind of the same point, that covetousness obscures the eternal. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? Notice the first person pronoun. It's all about him, right? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns, and I will build greater, and I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man is not noted as being some kind of evil guy. He's not noted as being an abuser. I mean, he's obviously a, a good steward of the things that fall into his hands. The problem is he lost sight of God and the eternal. He forgot that one day he was going to die and stand before the Lord. And the problem is, is that this guy has only lived for those things. He's only lived for the immediate. He's become oblivious to God. James Edwards says there are many forms of pride, but the worst of them is to think that one has no need of God. I have done this. I have done that. I have my crops, my fields. Wait a minute. You can't make anything grow. You could sit there and you could yell at the grain and the ground until you passed out from exhaustion and it will not cause that grain in the ground that seed to germinate and to produce. You can't, you have zero control over the ground or the rain. And yet he thought it was himself that was making all of this take place. And he says, you have lost it. He calls him a fool. He's a practical atheist. He's living for that which is in front of him and he's not living for the meeting with God. Um, the word fool here is in Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word. There is no God. The practical atheist says there is no God. And this is what this guy had become. He's not anticipating passing from this life and having to, to deal with the next. And so... Beware of covetousness because it obscures the eternal. Material things obscure the eternal. Well, how is that? Well, if you have such a comfortable life and every blessing is there, and some are like that, but here's what Jesus said. It's harder for the rich man to enter 
the kingdom of heaven. When you have nothing, it's easy to long for heaven where you are promised so much. But if you have so much in this earth, you must guard your heart. You need to beware of covetousness because you can lose sight of what is to come. Like, yeah, but it's pretty good here. I don't know if I really care about going to heaven. I mean, my life is really great. I like the way it is. And all of a sudden, we stop living for eternity. And so you've got to evaluate your own heart. You've got to listen and evaluate what the Spirit of God is saying to you. Are you so consumed with this world's goods that you have no vision of heaven? And I know what we say. Hey, we're supposed to be good stewards of what God has given. Yeah, but that's like a little emphasis in Scripture, okay? (laughs) I mean, there's far more emphasis upon covetousness and upon the treasures of this world clouding our vision. There is far more written about that than being a good steward. So be a good steward, but let's be real here. Sometimes we can allow that be our throwaway line. It's our cloak for um, unrighteous behavior. We put that on. So I want to be a good steward. But you're, you're like the miser. All you can think about is your stuff. The thought of, what would it be like if Jesus would say to you today, I want you to take and I want you to give $10,000 to these people. How would that, if, if you knew the Lord said, is that even a possibility? Is there even room for conversation with Jesus if he said to give something significant? I don't know what that number is, but if, if, if that's what the Lord said, would you do it? Could you do it? Or would you be like, I just can't, I can't part with my stuff? Then you got a problem. You've got a problem. Covetousness has a hold on you. Allow the Spirit of God to reveal how much of a grip that is. But this guy, living like a fool, a practical atheist, not thinking about God, only thinking about his stuff. Verses 22 through 34. And there's four simple points I want to draw from this section. And um, it's four ways to overcome anxiety. Verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body what you'll put on, right? So we've been talking about covetousness, and and he says, I don't want you to worry about these things. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They neither have storehouses nor barn, and God feeds them. See the connection, storehouses, barn, food, raven, you know, practical atheist guy. Of how much more value are you than the birds? So again, more value. That argument from the lesser to the greater happening again here. Don't worry about your life. Worry is foolish because we have purposes that are greater than material possession. If we are worried about our material possessions, that is a foolish thing because we have something that is far more valuable than stuff. We have the kingdom of God and righteousness and service unto him and loving one another and being kind to one another. I mean, we have so many other things to live for besides the stuff that could cause worry. And so Jesus is saying life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Your life is not about the stuff that you can collect. It's not about amassing stuff. It's about 
living for the kingdom. And Jesus is going to talk about that in just a moment. But the, the first point is, worry is foolish. It's a foolish thing to worry about provision in your life. Because we have so many other more important things to live for. And he says, consider the ravens. Why the ravens? The ravens in antiquity were thought to be like the most irresponsible of all the birds. And whether it's true or not, I don't know. I didn't look it up. But I do know that in antiquity, they thought that the ravens were so foolish that they would not even remember their nests to return to take care of their young. And so now you have God saying, I'm going to take care of a raven, even the one that does not plan for anything. Of all the birds, even the raven that just like is the, the one that's most irresponsible, he says, I take care of them. They don't have barns, yet God feeds them. Or the, you're more valuable than birds. Again, the Lord is using that argument from the lesser to the greater. Verses 25 and 28, worry is foolish because we can't change our circumstances. And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If then you are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So now we're going to use the argument of the lesser to the greater of the grass and the flowers on the hillside to taking care of clothing you or of feeding you in verses 22 through 24. Worry is foolish because we can't change our circumstances. And I, 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 you know, I can hear what we're saying. It's like, wait a minute. I can change my circumstances. All I have to do is be more diligent and work harder, and I can change it, and I can get and clothe myself. Can you really? And what if the Lord doesn't allow you to take another step? And what if your mind no longer can put two reasonable thoughts together? You see, you are dependent upon the Lord for your next breath in all of the, you know, the motor skills and the processing thought, mental thoughts and working through problems. This is all from the Lord. You can't do anything except for what the Lord has given to you. And so we begin to worry about this. And the Lord's like, don't worry about this stuff. You can't change it anyway. You can't change the very things that are causing you to worry. Just think about the field. I dressed them better than Solomon was dressed. So the field would be the lesser, Solomon would be the, the greater. And if, if this is the case, then I'm certainly going to take care of you and I'm going to clothe you. Worry, anxiety. Here's four ways to overcome them. Number one is, let's make certain that we remember that our life is much more important than material possessions. Number two, we can't change our circumstances. Number three, verses 29 through 31, worry is foolish because those outside the care of God do that. They do the worrying. And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind for all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you need these things, but seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Do you see this? The, the world worries about them. You, it's foolish for you to do that because 
That's what unbelievers do. That's what people outside of the care of God do. That's what people who do not have a heavenly father that's looking out over them, that's what they do. It is foolish for us as believers to worry about the provision because God has already promised to take care of us. That's what unbelievers do. And so this is why he says, do not have an anxious mind for the stuff. And he says, but seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. I just can't turn my mind off. Then seek the kingdom of God more. Well, I'm doing it a lot. Do it more. Seek the kingdom of God to the point where anxiety for the present is gone. Yeah, but if I do that, I'm going to like consume all my time. Well, how's not doing that working out for you? Are you tired of the anxiety? Are you tired of the, the, the misery and the torment in your mind? Then why don't you try a little bit of Jesus counsel here? Seek first the kingdom of God. Put it out in front, so far in front, that you are so consumed about this, the only thing your mind has time to go towards is what? The kingdom of God. But I think we try to, we try to just you know, do a little bit of kingdom and a whole lot of other. And so we never find the peace. Well, you know, my plan, though, is I'm going to get really on that kingdom of God thing just as soon as I get this one last thing worked out in my life. And that will never happen. Satan will make certain that it never happens. Because just about the time you get that thing taken care of, this thing's now going to be out of control. And so you're going to shift your attention over here, and then now two things are going to go out here. And before you know it, it's 10 years has gone by. What were the plans you had for... You're the kingdom of God 10 years ago. I'm not, I'm not trying to play the eye. I'm just saying, in your own heart and mind, what were the things you had planned to do for the kingdom of God? And yet, now you're so consumed with all this stuff and anxiety, and I've got so much stuff to worry about. Seek the kingdom of God, and then that stuff's going to come to you. It's faith. It is a faith step to totally trust the Lord. God wants to be our provider. Last point, fourth point of how to deal with anxiety. <clears throat> the store treasure in heaven. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail. So your money bag is heaven. Okay, that's the account where no thief approaches, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So is Jesus saying it's wrong for us to have material possessions? <laughs> He's not saying that it's wrong to have material possessions. He's saying it's wrong to be crippled by material possessions. He's saying that it's wrong that when material possessions have such a priority in your life that you have no time to make the kingdom of God first. Keep the context, right? And so in this context, he's speaking of, he's using some hyperbole. He's trying to communicate that get rid of the stuff that's troubling you. If you're so consumed about this stuff and it's owning you, then cut the ties with it and give, give it away. Break free from it by giving it away. And this is, I think, such an important lesson for us as 
stewards of the resources God has placed in our hand is that, you know, it's like, well, I don't know if really, God, does God really need me to give money to him? No, he doesn't. You need to give money, and I need to give of my money to him. Because every time I do it, you know what happens? Those strings that would turn into cords and bind me up into a materialistic, you know, man, they get cut every time I give. And as I give, I give unto the Lord, and I give to His way, and it reminds me it's not mine, and it helps to loosen the tie of materialism on my life. So Jesus is dealing with people that were bound in materialism. He's talking to a guy that, you know, uh, is, is a covetous man. It, that's idolatry. And so he addresses it in this really strong way. But the, what he says is, listen, Take that stuff that's owning you, give it away, and now you got treasure in heaven. Get your focus upon things in heaven. Store things up. Don't hoard. Be generous. The foolish farmer stored up things for himself, but how did that work out? It didn't work out well at all. He didn't ever get to enjoy it. And what did he have in heaven? Nothing, because he only had barns that were full, and yet he had nothing that he had put ahead. He was a foolish man. He did not think that his soul would be required. Your soul and my soul are going to be required. We one day will be before the Lord. And we want to make certain that the kingdom of God has been the priority. It's like, why all this talk about money? I don't know. Ask Jesus. He's the one that's talking about. This is his sermon, right? This is, he's talking about this over and over again here. And he understands the power and the pull of money and wealth and even the desire for wealth upon a person's life. And so he gives us teaching on it. So we have to make certain we're not those that are being hypocrites. We are to be aware of the hypocrisy. We're not allowed that to influence us. We are to make certain that we live in such a way that we are fearing God and not fearing these hypocrites that would want to um, keep us from following the Lord. We want to be fully devoted to Him, confessing Him and living for Him. And we also want to be aware of covetousness. We don't want to allow materialism to control us. And if you are one that has little priority for the kingdom of God and unwilling to share what the Lord has placed in your hands when you see need, then this sermon of Jesus was written for you. And you need to take heed to it because you don't want to be caught like that farmer that's not ready when the day comes when you got to stand before the Lord. You know, we have such opportunity. It is really, there is so much opportunity for us to store up treasure in heaven, isn't there? I mean, yes, with, with your finances, certainly that's part of it. That's not the only way to store up treasure in heaven, by loving one another. And being kind to one another, and forgiving one another, and serving one another, and using your spiritual gift, and evangelizing. All of these ways are ways by which we can store up treasure in heaven. And if you think that it's not a big deal, I assure you it's going to be a big deal when you get to heaven. It's going to be a big deal. You don't want to be the one that was saved but as though by fire. In other words, you come into heaven and fire has 
burned up everything your life was about. Your soul is saved, but you have nothing to show for what you did for the kingdom of God. You're saved by fire. You come in, whew, you know, you might still be smoking a little bit, but you, but you made it. Then there's going to be those that come in, and as the fire tested their life, there's going to be things that are found to his praise, honor, and glory. You've lived in such a way that Jesus is glorified. See, don't think about the treasures only having the impact of being a blessing upon you. All of those things are to the praise, honor, and glory of the Lord. We get to give these things back to Jesus. We get to lay them at his feet. You want to you be able to watch Jesus be glorified in heaven? Then live for his glory and for his kingdom. And when you get there and your life is reviewed and these things are laid at his feet, heaven is going to erupt and they're going to cheer Jesus on. I'm not going to cheer you or me on. They're going to cheer him on for what he did through our life. And you're going to want that opportunity to see Jesus' name glorified, having lived this life for him. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. We thank you, Lord, that you say hard things to us. You, you are willing, Lord, to rebuke us. We live in a day when we like to say nice things. We like to say only things that make people happy. And yet that certainly is not you. You say the things that challenge us. They wreck us. They turn us inside out. Lord, you're willing to call us upon covetousness. You're willing to call out hypocrisy. You're willing to call out when we fear man more than we fear you. And I pray that we would have an ear to hear the hard words that you spoke to us this evening. Thank you that they've been retained for our learning, our instruction, and to know what you're like, to get a feel, Lord, for how you speak and how you communicate. 